A couple of jobs ago, before I started getting paid for sharing my opinions, I worked for an employer that did not care to know them. And in one meeting for my yearly review, I was asked fairly directly why I wasn't doing more to become promoted. My reasons were simple. I liked the job I was doing and I was good at it. This wasn't going to be my career. It was just a job. The higher-ups were incredulous, and I was promoted anyway, with all the responsibilities and stresses thereunto appertaining. And so in the beginning of Crash Dive, when I saw P.T. Boat Commander Ward Stewart living his best life out there on his fast attack boat, only to be promoted into submarine duty, my shoulders sunk like his, punished for doing a good job. The film makes a big deal about Stewart's preferences in naval vessels, and he will tell anyone who asks just how superior a PT boat is to anything else in the water. Is this the conflict of the film? An assignment he doesn't like? No way! We pivot so hard into Ward Stewart becoming smitten with Gene Hewlett, and once he does, she becomes his entire focus, to the exclusion of all other concerns. And he really should have some other concerns, like, why aren't there locks in the bedrooms and sleeper cars? Or... At what point is showing up in a person's hotel room creepy? Or, how long is too long to drive to a mystery location on a date? That's all setting aside the biggest question of all. Who else Gene might be dating? And if that person is the very worst person it could possibly be? Lieutenant Commander Dewey Connors, the commander of the Corsair, the very submarine Stewart's been assigned to. And it's crazy that for a film that spends a good 70% of its time on this love triangle story, on trains and hotels and in officers' clubs, Stewart's relationship to Gene is only revealed to Connors a half an hour from the end of the film. Instead of bringing their conflict to any resolution, the two men have got to go out on a mission together. And because the Corsair isn't a place for feelings, Connors and Stewart mostly keep things professional even though Connors is pretty sure that Stewart cleared his lady friend's channel behind his back. By the end of the film, we are a long, long way from that meet-cute in the beginning. The crew of the Corsair has sieged the secret base, and the sub is surrounded by flames. And I didn't even mention that Captain Connors becomes a human periscope. This is so much more than a love triangle between Tyrone Power and Dana Andrews and Ann Baxter. It's got freighters that are really transformers, it's got a trip to grandma's house and a guy with a heart condition. You can't get milk like this from a sea cow on today's friendly fire as we discuss the 1943 Archie Mayo directed submarine love story, Crash Dive. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where the hosts knock back glasses of frosty cold milk like there's no tomorrow. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> Not me. I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> and I'm John Roderick. You guys want to do a, like a milk power hour? Let's go back and split a bottle. <laughs> Wasn't that a thing they did on Jackass where they, they did the gallon of milk test? <laughs> oh, the yeah. Gallon of milk yeah. challenge? I used to drink a gallon of milk a day. When I first got to Seattle... You were a growing boy. I was. That's but how I was, you got you know, all big and strong. I was 21 by then. <laughs> but when I got to Seattle, I was first introduced to coffee in the form of lattes. Mm. 
And I was like, these are amazing. And it's like coffee, right? Like, what's the secret? It's like grown up <laughs> drink, like coffee. And so I would get these 16 ounce lattes. Like I'd drink four of them a day or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. But, and the problem was I'd walk down the street and I was constantly hawking loogies into the gutter. And I didn't know why. Like, what's wrong with me? I've, I've got like all this. Oh, I've got all I this. I guess this mucus. is just growing up. Yeah, right. What happened to me? I just suddenly became very cool. Yeah, just like hawk. <laughs> and then I like hawked a loogie into the street one day in front of like some like a tough guy. And he was like, what? What the fuck? Don't spit in front of me. Like, yeah. don't, don't just spit on the ground in front of me. Like, that's an insult in, in whatever my sending a message gangster culture was. Right. And then somebody was like, you know why? You did have so four yellow handkerchiefs hanging out of your back pocket so, at the time. Because <laughs> I was a, a 21 Jump Street gangster, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Fighting the green handkerchief ones. But so then I realized, oh, you just drink coffee. You don't. It doesn't have to have all that milk. But these dudes. I feel like nobody ever orders a latte unless they're in front of me in line at the coffee shop. Right. And then they order a double frappuccino, half-calf. Yeah. Always the most complicated order right in front of me. These dudes in this movie drank a lot of milk and no booze. It's kind of the one part of the movie that that draws a bright line under something that sucks about being in the military. Right, like, like you're shipping this out. This movie is like is is mainly just about how fucking great it is to be in the navy, but it does not pull any punches about how you're desperate for fresh vegetables and and fresh milk when you get back from a cruise. It was well done because you don't see the suffering as they're suffering. You only see the aftermath of it. Right. Which is a which is kind of a joyful way to depict suffering in yeah. a, in a strange way, right? But Absolutely. but also like this is this is essentially a propaganda film for the Navy and it almost felt What? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ben. I know you loved it, but it, I bought 20 war bonds. I know you at did. The end. Right at the end, <laughs> yeah. they were available in the theater, yeah. in the lobby of the movie theater yeah. on your way out. <laughs> but it, it that part almost felt camp. There were several moments in the movie that were so cornball that it felt like maybe it was intentionally camp. Of course, the final speech of the film, yeah. where he's like, "All branches of the service are glorious." But that thing about like let's get some fresh milk, it it just it seemed all it seemed over the top. If you cut that end part off though, does it does it make the movie a lot better, or is there so much of that ingrained in the fabric of the film that it really stands out in the beginning it? of the movie and the end? Yeah, it's bookended by just crazy, crazy like almost Starship Troopers level. Like you can see what you can like feel when the writer of the film passed his typewriter over to somebody from the Department of Defense to finish the movie. Yeah, exactly. First, I want to tell you what a swell job you did singing that submarine. There are two movies here, right? There's the movie of the submarine warfare fighting the Q ships. And then there's the movie of Tyrone Power really <laughs> creeping out on this girl. Yeah. Yeah. And the two movies, like, I I mean, they come together in the plot device, but wow. Wow. Yeah. That other movie <laughs> makes, like, from here to eternity seem like Torah, Torah, Torah. <laughs> <laughs> 
the way you uh, convince a lady to marry you in uh, in the forties is real different. I was, you know, I I I knew that this was going to be a major feature of what we were talking about in context of this film, but even in the forties, by forty standards, he was incredibly creepy and aggressive, and not. I am I I cannot be convinced that that appealed to her. Like she fought him the entire film, and then what seems like nine months of courting was cut out of the middle. And mm-hmm. then one day uh, after one car ride, she was like, I love you after you being like despicable. It's ap- after she meets his Butler, right? <laughs> right. Or his uncle's Butler. Yeah. They look pretty good after that four hour nighttime top down car ride. They did. Right. <laughs> Still quaffed. Like they should be fucked up at the end of that drive. <laughs> Like, that car has no suspension. Like, there's no chance that the wind isn't blowing directly into the vehicle with the top down. They should be totally bedraggled. They look great. I would think an hour into that car drive, she would say, let me off at the next train station. Right. Like, she doesn't start to interrogate that until she's three hours into this drive. It really tells you what her limits are, though, too, right? <laughs> and they are way out there <laughs> with what she permits. Where are we going? <laughs> <laughs> so you just want to start with anal okay <laughs> i mean that would fully be the equivalent of, of me asking somebody out and then we we cross the cross the river into portland yeah and she's yeah. like are we going to dinner in in portland and i'm like no eugene yeah <laughs> i really love the montage <laughs> gotta take you that's nuts the assumption that she will will be charmed by all this is so is so like deep in his character and i wondered like is is that an assumption that guys just walked around with then or is this movie crazy and not based on a, an actual reality in the 40s i do not think that this was the reality in the 40s and i think it might have something to do with the fact that tyrone power was a major sex symbol star and so the audience might have been predisposed to think everybody wants to fuck him already right right. any woman is going to fall for tyrone power just based on his looks and his winning smile i think that this is the first film i've seen with tyrone power and i thought it was amazing that this movie expected me to be able to tell the difference between Tyrone Power and Dana Andrews from scene to scene. Dude, I was just going to say, I was so confused in that train scene because I'm like, oh, that's awesome. He snuck onto the train and into her berth. Like, that's a fun surprise. Yeah. I, I think I'm a Navy racist. Like, they all look, <laughs> they look the same to me. <laughs> I know Tyrone Power and have seen many films. And I had the exact same experience when, when he's on the train, yeah. I was like, but wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, we just saw the train pull away and he was on the platform Yeah, and he it was a different t- guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did he catch the train? Where's the corsage that he brought her? Yeah. Like the two, and how did he get in his pajamas? Yeah. The two protagonists of this movie are indistinguishable from one another until you really make a, a point to differentiate them. And that's before everyone puts on blackface at the end. <laughs> and then all bets are off. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what a movie. I mean, like, I, I think that the, the premise of the film 
is super compelling and interesting. And like you could make a movie about it today, like two guys who serve together on a submarine, like forming a really strong working relationship that like they it's it's like one of the few movies we've seen where the captain and the exo of the submarine have a ton of respect for each other and really like yeah. comport their themselves well in the context of work. And the and the rift is that they both happen to be dating the same lady and don't know it. Yeah, it's a great device. You're absolutely right. It made me think a lot about the movie The Key, which was 15 years after this one. But I wondered, it made me think like how much more 15 years gives you in terms of sophistication in showing a complex relationship between multiple people in that way. This is a fairly simple read of this story. I was shocked an hour into the film that, like, we weren't back on a submarine. There's a middle 40 here where there is absolutely no, no one even in uniform, really. No submarines. Yeah. And you're like, we started out with a lot of boats and submarines. Yeah. And we are in this domestic comedy now. Felt like in the key you were out on the tug every 20 minutes. Not the same here. I was worried that we had picked a not war movie. Yeah, Yeah. I did too. And I... as as the movie wore on, I thought if this was a a movie that was designed to raise money through the sale of war bonds in the lobby of the film, what they're trying to do is get as many butts in the seat as they could and as much domestic support for the war as they could. And that might have been that whole middle 40 might have been a ploy to appeal to women, hmm. female moviegoers like, no, 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 it's not just submarines like the bring the whole family. Your husband will love the blackface and some movie exec is, is chomping on a cigar like how are we gonna get broads to buy war bonds? exactly exactly and they're like i know let's put a let's put like a really uncomfortable courtings yeah. movie in the middle you know what broads like <laughs> three hour car drives <laughs> tyrone power we know how movie executives get sex so it's not inconceivable that this would be what they would think would would be a good strategy. For a film that's like ostensibly underwritten by the United States Navy, I was surprised that the chief was depicted as somewhat of a coward. Like his story that he told Oliver later on really made me sit up in my seat. Like, wow, really? Like this is 1943 and we're telling the story of a guy who who faked an illness not to get on a boat that ended up sinking. That felt pretty edgy. Yeah, but he is his cowardice is redeemed. Yeah. And he's the only person that we see or know that dies yeah. in this movie. That's this right. This is a freaking war movie, and they do essentially a, a, a suicide mission, Yeah, except everybody makes it back except the one guy that ever con- confessed cowardice. I cannot believe... I love submarine films, and I've seen a lot of them. I cannot believe I've never seen another submarine film where the captain rides on the conning tower to get the ship out of trouble. <laughs> that was awesome. Isn't that incredible? Wow, that was great. He's up there in in like a swimming pool on a radio. He's, just he's like neck deep in it too, like holding on for dear life. Why hasn't that been ripped off? I don't know if that's possible. I watched that whole thing and I was like, is this, he's like, take it to 30 feet. And I'm thinking he's going to be 10 feet underwater. Yeah. But 30 (laughs) feet is just like with, 
with two feet of clearance in the conning tower. It says, take it to 30 feet, and then he puts on his snorkel and scuba mask. Yeah, right. And his, and yeah. just the, the, top, the tip of the snorkel is out of the water. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that middle 40 that felt like, what are we doing here, was not forgotten about, but forgiven when it came time to do the climactic conclusion to the film that featured this this mission the mission was great that moment was an incredible part of the film yeah it made me love the movie i mean he's going out through that through that netting and they're all like brace for the netting yeah but they've they've successfully blown up the net (laughs) and they're all like whoa we made it and the ocean is on fire around them and they blew up the net and saved a torpedo in the process yeah saved a torpedo there are some beautiful compositions in this film. One of them is the submarine surfaced, just wrung with fiery water. Yeah. Looked yeah. great. So I, I wanted to ask you guys, because there are some incredible special effects in this movie, and there are also some really bad ones. And we've seen movies like that before. Yeah. It's starting to seem to me like a leitmotif of the submarine subgenre is that always there are some really impressive special effects peppered in with some really bad ones. The whole attack on the Q-boat was just bad. It was just a model and it looked bad. But then what, all, I, I've never heard the term Q-boat before. Can you, uh, can you elucidate that a little bit, John? Yeah, a Q-boat was a is basically a trawler or a tramp steamer. It looks like a civilian boat. And what they, so submarines. I, I believe they want to be called sex worker steamers now. Sex worker steamers, right, not <laughs> tramps. Although they do have sex worker stamps. Uh, yeah, good luck keeping those uh, vessels away from each other in uh, port. They're going to want to be uh, sharing the same line. Uh, <laughs> yeah? climbing, climbing the same bunk on a, uh-huh. on a night train. <laughs> Uh, the, the idea of them is that submarines do have a limited number of torpedoes and they don't want to waste them. And so typically, like, if a sub if a sub found an undefended freighter out in the water, generally it would just surface and sink it with the deck gun because they had a lot of shells for the deck gun or right. easier to pack, right? They wouldn't waste a torpedo on it. And even if they hit it with a torpedo, they might surface and finish it off. And so a Q-boat, looks like a just a freighter and they really did have panels and trap doors that hid these you know like like i was so cannons. shocked by this yeah <laughs> it looked like transformers technology i thought it was going to turn into an actual <laughs> robot out yeah, in the water or like a bird right? yeah they tried to do it in world war one because they were using losing a lot of shipping to u-boats and they tried to do it in world war two um the Instead, they, they decided to dig trenches in the water. Yeah. Tre- tre- <laughs> I think that was the Polish Navy that was doing that, Adam. Oh, fuck. Oh. You got me. You got me. <laughs> I walked right into it. I got to be more careful. Adam was, was bobbing in the sea surrounded by fire, and he just yeah. had to take a breath. Mm. <laughs> uh, but the, the thing about that strategy, the Q-boat strategy, is that, like, over time it didn't actually produce very good effects they they lost an awful lot of q-boats uh because u-boats were like well we'll just maybe we won't surface and finish them with the gun maybe we'll just torpedo them seems like a pretty high value target when you come across one were the germans in the habit of flying false flags like that well you know they had invaded 
Sweden and Norway and the and Holland and so forth. So yeah, there, I think there's a lot of that because um, the British use Q boats too, and it's it's sort of like in Master and Commander where you're faking like something because yeah. that's a whole plot point in Master and Commander too, right? That they look like a whaling ship, and then when they're attacked, all of a sudden the 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 insect disguises itself as a stick. Yeah, right, right. And then they but but there's there's something in the rules of of sea war where you strike the fake colors and you raise up the Union Jack or you right. you, you put up your your uh, your Kriegsmarine flag. Yeah, that's honorable, right? Yeah, you right. gotta fly the real flag at some point. Yeah, there's always this moment where they're like, "Lol." Yeah, <laughs> jokes. So, and I don't know, I don't know what the rules of the sea are where it's okay to you know to fly like a like peace flag. It, the the Germans don't don't come out of this movie looking terribly honorable though. No, true. There wasn't a ton of German spoken in this film, but the version that I saw didn't have German to English subtitles when they were speaking to Jews. Well, no, because all he says is wunderbar yeah. and like Torpedoes los. You don't get that all the time. I think my point is like I'm glad that they didn't give us wonderful in right, English, right. for example, <laughs> like you don't need it. Yeah. It gave the audience a little bit of credit. Yeah. And also pretty obvious what he's saying. Like, yeah. Uh, but the Germans are, except for the captain of the Q-boat, the Germans are completely faceless automatons, right? Even more than in most movies. We never see a single German twice. They're mostly just like helmets in shadow. But this was 43, so like the war was in full swing. But we weren't fighting the Germans yet on land. Right, like 43, depending on, I don't know when exactly in 43. So this but, was an aspirational film? Yeah. We were uh, we were invading Italy or about to invade Italy. So this commando raid must have felt really good in the theater because like we finally got a chance to engage the Hun. Punch the Jerry's in the nose. That's right. It was scary enough seeing the crew ready themselves for the commando mission without the subtext between the captain and the XO and the idea that maybe he's being sent out to die and you're not really sure. Yeah. It's like, if that's the case, I appoint you to lead the suicide mission. That was so much more nuanced than I expected from a film of this era. It was really scary. (laughs) I thought it was good. Like there's so many movies we've watched where the captain is explicitly sending the XO on the yeah. suicide mission because the captain hates and wants rid of the yeah. XO, right? And this, it doesn't quite come across that way. Yeah. And and the only hint we ever get is really like, just not even a cold shoulder, but like a room temperature shoulder that the captain's giving him. <laughs> Lukewarm. He just doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Well, so thinking about male-female roles and, and masculine competition in the 40s, like... This is a very chaste movie. Nobody, there's a little bit of kissing. Yeah. And not even like powerful kissing. And the captain of the boat doesn't want to doesn't want to ask her to marry him until he is a lieutenant commander or whatever so he can afford to buy her house and give her the life she deserves. You want to get that stripe money. And Tyrone Power through all of his creepy courtship, it's all about like I love you. You love me. And so, not financial. But also he's like definitely comes from money. He has like no issue there. 
in the way that the captain does. But my, my mom talks about her teenage years and her 20s, and she said this... You could not get in a in a bunk on a train without some creep getting in there before you. <laughs> or was in there already, right? But, but my, you know, my mom's description of the time was that it was perfectly okay to go on dates with people and neck. And so you would neck with, you know, potentially like five suitors... But you wouldn't go any further than that. So it wasn't like you were sleeping with five guys. It was just like you'd go out on a date and you'd neck with somebody as a way of kind of auditioning them. And so this movie has that element. And now you do neck, you do back. Yeah, you do the whole, you do do sex worker stamp. Um, But so the jealousy that the captain has for for the XO, like it's, it's this powerful jealousy of she loves you and not me, but it doesn't have that extra component of like, have you guys been sleeping together this whole time? Right. Like the concept of like a long, like exclusive pre-marriage relationship wasn't, wasn't like normal then. Or it had, it had a different tenor, right? So there's not that extra element of, of shame and embarrassment and, that would make him combative. It's just all like sad, the counterpoint to that, like up before the revelation of them dating the same person, is like a really good professional friendship that they have with each other. Like they're on a first name basis. I feel like a lot of films of this type of like mistaken identity or like two people realizing they're dating the same person and not knowing it up until a specific moment are that they are strangers to each other. But this idea that they've, that they began in a, in a rocky way and then formed... A, a friendship to each other that is another thing for them to lose raised the stakes when your mom was dating did her suitors keep two of of the same picture basically <laughs> in a in like an open book style frame like what was the deal with the two pictures just so just so we we couldn't miss it yeah like one slightly different yeah. pose but not too different that was wild well, and, and Tyrone Power keeps a picture of her in his cigarette case. Tyrone Power had a better picture of her. He did, but he claimed to have clipped it out of a newspaper. Yeah. yeah. And weirdly, she's in a whack uniform or, you know, or a wave uniform. She's in some kind of military uniform, although there's no indication that she's part of, or, or was that like a Girl Scouts uniform? It was something, she was in uniform in that yeah. picture yeah. that he clipped out of the newspaper what, how did that Is work? Is that the creepiest shit that he did? <laughs> like, she, there's there's a that's, list. That's the like looking feel... for a bikini shot on Facebook yeah. of 1943. <laughs> like was she in the newspaper that week or did he go to the library and clip it out of it? I mean, how much research was he doing on her? Hey, Stuart, you've you've been in the bathroom looking at your cigarette case for a while. What's going on in there? <laughs> just just smoking. I'm smoking. <laughs> Oh, well, speaking of smoking, I have uh, something that a pedant complained about on the internet uh, that I thought I would share with you guys. When the submarine submerges after being ambushed by the Q-boat, they are lying on the bottom, and the captain passes the word that the smoking lamp is lit for 10 minutes. Since World War II-era submarines did not have any form of air purification equipment on board, no submarine commander would ever authorize smoking whilst underwater as this would quickly use the limited air supply on board the boat. 
Smoking was only allowed while surfaced, and the men had to be outside the hull, either on deck or a specific section in the aft section of the conning tower, known colloquially as the cigarette deck. Hmm. You know, that's why they lost a lot of the resale value on these World War II submarines, (laughs) is that they'd all been smoked. Yeah, it never comes out of the upholstery. Yeah. There's a scene early on when when they're getting to be friends, the captain and the XO, where they're standing out on the dock. And because there's this there's this uh, sort of plot device or or a character device where the captain's always out of cigarettes and and Tyrone Power always offers him a cigarette. And maybe it's a maybe it's establishing a class dynamic between the rich guy and the poor guy. Yeah. Although that's not really hammered down our throats either. Mm -hmm. But Tyrone Power offers him a cigarette. And I think it's the captain that says. You know, thanks, man. Let's go on the boat and have a. Let's go on the boat and smoke these cigarettes. <laughs> and I was like, "You're you're standing on the dock, and you're like, let's go down in this submarine and smoke." <laughs> it was the weirdest kind of thing to. Why? Why? And we don't see them do it. It was just like, "Hey, man, let's go find a let's go find a place like some weird corner of the submarine and like fill it up with smoke." As much of an advertisement as this movie is for joining the Navy or buying war bonds, it feels like it is it is like pushing smoking in a weird way. It's not like they're just smoking because everybody likes to smoke. It's like, hey, these cigarettes are great. I really enjoy smoking cigarettes. My grandma enjoys smoking cigarettes. Everybody loves cigarettes. How about the dumbs who don't smoke and aren't able to take this great cigarette break everyone else gets to take? <laughs> right. Like they have to work for these ten minutes. They don't smoke, they don't drink milk. Yeah. What do they do? Yeah. <laughs> but but weirdly there was no product placement. We never saw Chesterfield cigarettes or yeah. or uh, Winston's like you would expect. There would also be a kind of I wonder uh, if the Navy asks for exclusivity as far as its product placement goes. Like you will only show Navy products here. Uh, well, c- cigarettes were in K-rations, or I mean, they were distributed yeah. free to s- to soldiers and sailors as a way of, I don't know what, like... Were they good, do you think? I or mean, did people crave coming home just to get a good camel cigarette? Boy, I can't answer that question. Yeah. I, I've had some bad cigarettes in my day, I've, like Ducados in Spain, one of those is enough to like put you in bed for a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's why they need the siesta, right? Oh yeah, that is. You smoke a cigarette and you take a nap. You don't want to do both in the same place, though. Smoking in bed is very dangerous. People burning in their beds. <laughs> that's the mood to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. How did they accomplish those underwater submarine shots? which were better looking than Hunt for Red October. So much better. I mean, they looked great. They really did. I think it's all like miniatures, but I think they're fairly big miniatures. Like I think that I'm, I'm, I'm picturing like a model submarine that's like 10 feet long and like has, because I mean like when they let torpedoes go, you see the bubbles come up, you know, like they're, they're actually shooting something out of something when that happens. Yeah, like it's often not the thing itself that betrays the effect. It's the stuff around it. So it's not so much the sub as it is the speed of the water as right. it moves the or the bubbles. The There's a shot in this that blew me away, which was when uh, when Connors plays possum and blows the shit out of the torpedo tubes. How did they make that look that good? I don't know. Because when the uniforms and the and the crates fly out. That looks fairly photorealistic in a way that models do not work. Yeah. But then we come up immediately after that, come up on the surface, and the the Q boat looks like it's made out of cigar boxes. Yeah, I mean it's like so bad looking, and the waves are out of scale. So they knew how to do this really hard thing, make a submarine look right, but somehow they couldn't get that boat to look right. This. The film I thought was cut really effectively, like the sequences of these things for as bad as that cargo ship looked, they did a great amount of cutting around to uh, rear projection, to B-roll, to rear projection, to wide shot, to model effects. Like you didn't get a chance to really linger on these shots too long in a way that helped. I think it was probably their only choice, but I thought it was well done. Yeah, the geography of the film was easy to understand and keep in your mind. And every once in a while, they they cut to like the the great element of 1940s movies where there's actually a map and you see the line of the the, the trip of the boat where you're like, oh, I get it. They're out over the Grand Banks now, like right on. All those shots of the letters that are super big and and are stills, like perfectly lit with a finger. (laughs) Those are fun. Day 24, no contact. Uh, We all watched this on iTunes as an iTunes rental. I thought the quality of the print, however they were able to source this film, was great. Technicolor. Yeah. Yeah. It looked beautiful. And there was a version of this film in black and white for a long time. Really? Really? I mean, like Technicolor is on the poster, so that must have been a real disappointment. Yeah, that... (laughs) Well, there were there were a couple of different posters for this, weren't there? I mean, we yeah, saw sure. like two or three different. The iTunes poster is not good. No, it's they should bad. have gone with a classic poster. The classic poster is great. It's the type of thing that if I got an actual one of those, I'd put it right up on the wall. Absolutely. The iTunes yeah. poster makes it look like it's it's going to be a red bad quality movie. Yeah, you could just Photoshop Nick Cage in there, and you would think you're looking at the poster yeah. for USS Indianapolis: Men of Courage. <laughs> 
<laughs> the colon men of courage are one of the great tribes. Yeah. <laughs> one of the great Scottish tribes. They would ride down from the highlands. Uh, the colon men of courage. <laughs> Don't ask him what's under their kilts. Well, babies, you're on your way. Is the uh, is the broom on the on the conning tower a thing that was commonplace or is that like the culture of the USS Corsair that they they put a broom up to say they've made a clean sweep? No, that was totally that was totally a navy thing. It's just like when an iron worker tops out a the construction of a building, they always put a pine like a pine tree up on the top of the building to signify that they've they've put their last beam in. If you watch buildings get constructed, you'll always see a pine tree really up on the top corner of them when all the steel work is done. Wow, the iron work. Never, I've never noticed that. Me neither. Yeah, so it's it's. I mean, there are a lot of these kinds of traditions where you is it like a Charlie Brown's Christmas size tree, yeah. or is it an actual like honking tree? I mean, it's a tree that's big enough to be seen from the ground. Yeah. So depending on the size of the building, I guess they might haul up a. Wow. Like a medium-sized Christmas tree, but it's like one of the traditions. That's cool. So the clean sweep broom was definitely, I mean, I don't know if they do it still, but. Yeah. Instead of the broom, they almost just had their dead drowned captain. That's right. Up there. I could not believe that he survived that. The entire history of film suggests that he was going to make the ultimate sacrifice. Right. And make it easier for everybody's like romantic triangle right. yeah, to, to that's be resolved the neat ending. resolve the whole thing right but about halfway through that scene he's laughing up there and everybody's <laughs> like having a good old time and you start to feel like wait a minute is he not gonna die how can they possibly play this off and then that shore battery fires one shot they one in a zillion uh artillery shot that hits the moving target yeah hits the conning <laughs> they tower. should have cut back to those guys just like yeah <laughs> <laughs> the thing is they don't fire a second shot right the boat is the boat like actually surfaces one guy pays point. the guy next to him like a stack of deutsch marks <laughs> like <laughs> i didn't think you could do it man that was crazy <laughs> <laughs> and then and, they, and then they haul him down and it's like and and I'm waiting for him to die right yeah. I'm waiting for him to be like it's go ahead man you know I hope you make her happy and then the the medic is like ah oh, it's just a flesh wound it's fine mm-hmm. we're just left like how to just left totally hanging emotionally yeah. I. I can't help but think of those guys at the at the secret base now. Like the the place is in flames. They're looking around them. Everything is fucked. Hey, <laughs> Olaf, man, I'm never gonna forget that. Like <laughs> shit is fucked right now. But that was a real high point of the war for me. <laughs> I really love serving with you, Helmut. <laughs> that was pretty badass. <laughs> Did the did the music in this movie remind you guys of uh, of the national anthem of Canada in a weird way? You know, like oh, like we won't get sued for copyright infringement if we use this fake version of O Canada in our movie. There's a lot of of just sort of naval music. Right, the the theme of the U.S. Navy it, it, it gets in there quite a bit as a 
leitmotif. Mm-hmm. It's not always exactly it. They're kind of playing around with it. But the orchestral score of this movie is a full-on character in the film. And it's crazy to listen to because you you because it's an actual piece of music as as the as it cuts from scene to scene or or shot to shot the music is following the cuts and 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 yet it's a single composition that changes to changes like mood and mode yeah and it's loud i mean it's cranked yeah it's it is like the dominant soundscape in the movie and and and, and like from a sound perspective this movie does feel very primitive compared to some of the stuff we've watched like when somebody when something needs to be quiet like they'll just cut all sounds out <laughs> like when he's setting the uh when he's setting the charge to blow up the uh the oil dump at the at the secret sub base there just isn't any noise you know it's not it's not that they like have like quiet little clicks and taps as he's as he's setting the timer they just cut the soundtrack entirely but it's uh, crucially, it's not quiet. It's still got like film noise almost yeah. in it, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they didn't, they couldn't, or didn't filter that out. The, the teeth in the film, yeah. <laughs> like there's there's a hum to the film that occurs throughout. But yeah, when the music is when the music is playing, it is like the only thing you can hear. <laughs> Did you feel at any point like your allegiances for either Stewart or Connors were? Like, were you going back and forth between them? Were you always rooting for one or against another? I thought this film did a fairly good job in not making us prefer one over the other. I Maybe maybe it's just me, but I was not rooting for Stuart necessarily, but I, but I didn't hate him either because of what was happening between he and Gene. He was such an aggressive... Look, the beginning of his courtship was fucked up, and I didn't... Like that much because well, he's all. using all this extortion and like blackmail and shit and weird like uh like game playing that involves some real strategy like calling up the hotel clerk to check himself out of the room and keeping the key and like doing all that shit like that's that's not good clearly yeah. but I think a film tells you who it wants you to like and who it wants you to root against and this film wants you to like Stuart and I kind of did but it also told you not to root against connor's which seems like a pretty sophisticated thing to do at this at this moment in filmmaking like it's not it's not a lowest common denominator this guy's good this guy's bad sort of thing because they're both so competent as navy guys well and they also really like each other yeah, yeah. super tight bros yeah we see some of the usual submarine uh, like character tropes, but in the romance, we're given Connor as a goody two shoes, right? He's not a bad boy. He's honorable. He wants to make this. He wants to make an honorable woman out of her, and all this. Yeah. And then the Tyrone Power character is a bad boy. He's like won't take no for an answer. He keeps showing up at her school. He puts everybody at risk over and over. His parents know that he's a piece of shit. Yeah, they, you know, or his aunt. Yeah, he's just yeah. like he's a bad person, and you should yeah. avoid him. But it's all like charming. And she directly tells Jean, like, 
like, oh, another one, yeah, like right. to her face. <laughs> oh, they have that 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 scene oh, on the stairs. Oh, there's my nephew, yeah. the the stick man of the family. Yeah, <laughs> they have that scene on the stairs where that where the aunt is like, oh, it's nice to see you, and Tyrone Power is like, no, 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 different girl. Yeah, <laughs> and she's yeah. like, oh, interesting. Hello, you know, there's like this is a movie of... where a lot of people look very similar to each other, yeah. and I could be forgiven for mistaking you for one of his previous lady friends. <laughs> But so he's a bad boy, and I don't know in, I don't, I mean, certainly now, we're often, or almost always, asked to root for the bad boy over the squeaky clean boy. Yeah. That's just, that's just normal movie stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And and maybe in 1943, that was also true. Like, the bad boy is the one that you're going to end up with, because there's just so much more life and excitement in in that relationship. Jean makes that case to her lady friend uh, at the school. She's like, I think she calls Connors the rock. Yeah, right. The rock is the one you marry. You marry the rock. Then your bottom line will read has been. Is she teaching at a summer camp? No, it's an all girls school. Where they learn archery. Oh yeah. That's pretty awesome. How, how else do, do they defend the school grounds from the marauding creepers that want to want to come hit on their teachers? Yeah, should uh, should the Axis powers ever make landfall, they're gonna <laughs> be into some big trouble. You'll have to go through our teenage girls first. <laughs> I guess archery in prep schools and in girls' prep schools is like yeah, pretty common. Sporting event. Well, Adam, uh, that actually brings up uh, another uh, interesting error in the film that an internet pedant caught. Uh, When the schoolgirls are shooting their arrows in the archery class, they're fired at an angle of about 45 degrees. When actually, because of the effect of gravity, these arrows would fall well below their targets and not, as in the film, hit them with so much success. Gravity pedants. (laughs) Full on. Truly, the worst pedant. Did you not notice that as they draw the as they drew back their bows? Didn't you wait for them to like in the fir- the first time they fire an arrow? They draw back their bows, uh-huh. and and she immediately says fire before they even had a chance to aim. I kept waiting for them to elevate, and they just kind of pulled back and let go. Well, this is a ready fire aim kind of film, right? It's true. One of the girls was a little obscured. She was the one with the compound bow. <laughs> And she just ripped her arrow right through the target. That's actually Gina Davis's first film credit. Uh (laughs) I'm a chef! Yahoo! I think that the reason I didn't catch it while watching the movie is that I don't think that they ever show the targets and the girls in the same shot. They just show Mm -hmm. them cutting from the girls letting letting the arrows go to the targets. Movie magic. I just imagined, oh, like maybe they're like 10 feet back. They're just really, really close to those targets. This movie is filled with all those old school tricks. You know, like I love that PT boat scene where they're clearly on a soundstage and you can see the shimmery water reflected on the thing. Like I so wanted to see below the frame and a guy like wobbling (laughs) a bounce card down there (laughs) to make it happen. It, It felt like it didn't feel cute though. Like it never, I never judged against it. No, it's technique. Yeah. We, we see, like, cool airplanes in these movies a lot and, mm-hmm. and thrill to them, but 
oh, I loved those PT boats. Yeah. And you almost never see them, right? I mean, PT-109 has some PT boat footage, but a lot of that is is models. It feels like you can't get a PT boat movie without a Kennedy involved. Yeah. And this was a Kennedy-less PT boat but film. Those, those things were hauling ass. And later on in the film, he... You know, he says like one day you'll have a submarine that goes fifty knots. Yeah, and I was like, those things go fifty knots. They were barely touching the water. Yeah, yeah, just and they're big, big boats. Yeah, for for how powerful they are. I don't know if they've we got have everything a boat. but a waffle iron, John. They got everything but a waffle iron. I don't know if we have a boat in the navy now that can that can do that. There was one shot in the film that made me feel like I was watching train drives at screen, which was (laughs) one of the PT boats was coming right at like at flank speed, like right at the camera before turning away. Suddenly I wanted to see the next three seconds of that footage because I think whoever was in the camera boat just got totally fucked up. Right. I like that uh, their attack on the on the U-boat and the PT boat scene makes like the headline in the newspaper the next day. Yeah. <laughs> and that was another scene where, uh, or we saw a couple of, of scenes where like, uh, I forget, what was the movie where, where they dropped 800 depth charges? It was the one in the, in the South Atlantic, mm-hmm. right? What Is was that, that called? Enemy Below? Enemy Below, that's right. Uh, they were dropping real depth charges here. Yeah. Funded by the Navy, and yeah. I just love to see like real ordinance. Yeah, really fun. It was really cool. I also really loved the outfits they wore on the PT boats. It's like a it's like a hooded jacket with a necktie, and then yeah. khakis and brown shoes. Oh, yeah. very and solid. Shocked, shocked about the presence of a hooded sweatshirt in this film. Yeah, and they were probably like waterproofed in some way too, rubberized. Great look, great jacket movie. Because later on, uh, the XO gets a jacket put on him when he's like in that final scene in the film. They put a leather jacket on him because he was wet. Yeah. Well, and he also, uh, his pitching arm, they wanted to keep it warm. <laughs> but all the clothes in this movie are great. And, and you can tell that all the Navy uniforms are 100% cotton. Mm. And somewhere along the line in the, in the armed forces after polyester was invented in the 50s, like all military uniforms now are 50-50. That's why you never see Orthodox Jews in the military anymore. Interesting. They can't wear artificial fabrics. And no blended fabrics. It's not, uh, it's a uh, trafe to wear a blended fabric. It's like eating a, eating a sandwich with a slice of cheese on it. <laughs> right. You don't, you want to keep them separate. Two separate sets of plates. But, uh, but the, the officer's uniforms are cotton twill and they look so great because they just have that like slight puckering around the seams that cotton mm-hmm. uniforms have and i just, oh i envied them so much i would if i could find one in my size i would just wear a navy officer's uniform every day until i wore it out the admiral's uniform i especially liked because he is really just like he is poured into that thing <laughs> Every every brass button is like straining against his <laughs> barrel chest, and it, it's like it's like a it's like one of those things where like some people put on a jacket that doesn't quite fit them and it looks terrible, but somehow he looks great. Yeah, he's a he's a strong and capable admiral, not some not some pencil pusher. He wants to get in the fight too. That was gravitas, right? Yeah. I don't know if you have any submariners in your life. As, as as social contacts? I do, as a matter of fact. Could you ask this person 
what they do at the end of a mission to reclimatize to normal life. Because we get a scene of a sun lamp spa where they're ostensibly not just there for a tan. Like yeah, there's some sort of... Sort of a medical environment, right? It's like a... Yeah. They're soaking up vitamin E. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, it's kind of played for a little bit of a joke here. Like they're hungry for butter sandwiches after the, the heat lamp spa. But I'd like to know more about what you do after a mission at sea like this and how that technology has changed. I, they, they must take vitamin E supplements. Yeah. I thought it was vitamin D that you get from the sun. Oh, is it I'm e? sorry, D. Yeah, I think it's got to be D. D, sorry. I always want the D. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of sad submariners Yeah. with vitamin deficiencies. God, butter sandwich. Did not disgust me to see that. It was a full-on, like basically a stick of butter in a single slice of bread folded over and just dig in. That had to be so good. Really good. Yeah. How about Juan and his horn of plenty at the officer's uh, club? It like, was a real cornucopia. Well, he lifted, ready to go. He lifted up that thing and you were like, whoa. Yeah. The only thing missing was the watermelon. Yeah. And he specifically asked for watermelon and then asked again. I was surprised pleasantly at how much, I mean, look, they are, uh, they are service industry jobs that they're playing but uh, the amount of racial diversity we got in this film, surprising to me. And with speaking lines and everything. And Oliver fucking goes on the mission and shoots a gun and, like, swims and stuff. Like, he is he is the sixth build guy in this movie for he's a reason. A, he's a major character. Yeah. And I kept waiting for him to mug or bulge out his eyes or do some yeah. other 40s, like, the black guy on the boat. But and, instead, he showed real caring for other people and did not die first. It was Chief that died and not him. As soon as he went on the mission, I was like, sorry, Oliver. Like, we're leaving you. Yeah. <laughs> we're leaving you in the in the flames. He was wise and yeah. compassionate and yeah. he won the Chief over until he became the character that the Chief loved. Yeah. Yeah. And I, he I was think a, that the, like, knock against that character is that it's an uncomplicated character. Like, and that's right. and that's kind of it. Like No one's complicated in this film besides the top three roles, though. Right, right. But he is, like, a... Right, I mean, the chief is... I guess the chief is complicated in that he's got a, he's got a terrible story to tell. But I, I could not place that character or... I mean, I guess as a recruiting film, it certainly was a great a great ploy to yeah. to to telegraph to the african-american community hey join the navy mm -hmm. and you'll be just one of us and we're not going to treat you like shit look at chief right and you'll yeah. get out and do all these exciting things and then yeah. of course you know and if you're chinese american you can work in an officer's club yeah i thought those guys were filipino but yeah I've, i there was there was a lot of because the first black person we see in the movie is a porter on the train yeah and you get a feeling of like oh i see how this is gonna go mm-hmm but so I could not place that character as except in the context of like, hey, uh, African-Americans joined the Navy. And I think probably they did in droves and then realized, oh, wait, I'm kitchen staff. What about the guy in the summary movie who got to be a commando? And the Navy brass was like, ah, sorry. <laughs> it's not, how, it's not yeah. how it actually rolls here. It's not an integrated submarine He's the only born commando. I didn't feel the manipulative hand with Oliver's character 
though in a way that I appreciated. Like if Oliver participated in, or if Oliver's voice participated in that last turn to camera recruiting speech that uh, that Stewart gives at the end, that would have been a huge eye roll and a form of that kind of manipulation. But well, and Oliver did not have a Southern accent. Yeah, he did not speak any kind of patois. He just was. I mean, you know, an interesting. Why did he care so much about the chief? Like, like Ben made an interesting comment like a second ago. He was like, he was uncomplicated, which I read as just normal. Like he's a normal guy in the Navy, which I was grateful to see. Like he's the only, he's the only enlisted man we know other than the chief. Yeah. Everybody else is an officer. Yeah. And I, I, and through the whole movie, I kept waiting for like you, like you were saying, like he's the one, he's the red shirt. Yeah. And he wasn't, he, the film loved him too. Yeah. I thought he was great in it. Interesting uh, factoid about the guy who played Oliver, Ben Carter. He was in Gone with the Wind, and he started his own casting agency. He was responsible for the placement of every black actor in Gone with the Wind. Like, they all went through his agency. Really? Yeah. Kind of a player. One other image that I wanted to talk about in this movie was the Buddha that they have on the sub. They, like, rub its belly when, when they, like, let torpedoes go. Right. What's that? Where was that coming from? Is that like a a, military issue Buddha or is that just the culture of the Corsair? I mean, strangely like, like anti-Christian at a time when, I mean, now you see little Buddhas everywhere. My sister's got five of them. Yeah. But that would have been super uncommon, I think, then and- I think originally they had one of those cats that's waving- yeah right, <laughs> and they they put a little penny in his lap every time they launch a torpedo, but like a weird talisman. Yeah, and it and it suggests a backstory, implies a an element of the culture of this ship that we never get any more information about. We're no strangers to superstition in war films, though. Right. Well, and and I don't know if you guys caught it, but the chief actually spits on it, and then polishes his belly with the with the spit like spits on it to spit polish it which i was like whoa i don't know how God, to that belly's got to smell awful <laughs> cigarette spit so much nicotine has yeah. uh, co- coagulated on it <laughs> when we went to uh when we went to new york to clean out my grandfather's uh apartment after he died and like took took pictures off the walls the the like nicotine outline of the of the uh, of the picture frames was still visible, so I'm just uh, I'm just imagining what what that Buddha is coated with. Yeah, well, I mean, if they're going down into the sub to have cigarettes, yeah, at a certain point you're not going to be able to turn any of those valves. Like the captain is smoking during some of the combat scenes. I can't imagine serving on a submarine and not wanting to take every tenth of a second that you can above deck that you can possibly have. Right. Like, I would want to be the last one through the hole. But perhaps that is why you are not a submariner. Yeah. They, they probably I'm test not a submariner that. because I can't participate and hide the shit. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows. Uh, what wh- is this where bowl Adam's of chili? chili? <laughs> 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 this chili has turned. <laughs> Do not put that on your hot dog. Um, the set of the sub was really impressive to me for the era also. I was trying to picture whether they 
actually shot this on a a Navy sub. Like it seems like the Technicolor cameras at that time would have been so big. It would have been really hard to get them down in there and, you know, back far enough to get good shot compositions. So I was imagining they had like a cutaway fake submarine, but. Or maybe a cutaway real submarine. I mean, maybe they just either took a sub that hadn't been completed yet. I mean, they had the cooperation of the Navy. Yeah. Or maybe a sub that they were retiring. A lot of times in modern films, they will shoot in training subs or, you know, like subsections that are on dollies and stuff. And I wonder if that was the play here. Hmm. Yeah. It looked great. Like, it looked as good as any submarine we've seen in any movie. Although we saw some submarine tropes, right? And... And the whole uh, fire the um, the flotsam out of the torpedo tubes, yeah. which we see a lot. Everybody on the boat acted like it was a brand new concept <laughs> that no submariner had ever heard of. I was wondering if this was the movie that introduced the idea. I wondered that too. Like, isn't this a thing that submariners have been doing forever? Because they were really like, what's the captain up to? Right. As he throws all the life jackets into the torpedo. Yeah, it's one of those movie things where somebody has a great idea but doesn't explain it to anyone. <laughs> right. But it seems like, put the life jackets and all of our junk in the torpedo tube. What could he be doing? <laughs> hey, man, I like that shirt. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, <laughs> what, the, what the fuck? Is he just trying to clog the torpedo tubes? <laughs> like, what a weird, you know, it's not a thing that would require that much explanation. That's the last of our coffee, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mr. Stewart, let's get on with our course. Uh, during the depth charge scenes, we did not see the Star Trek throwing yourself around the set while they while they move yeah, the camera back not and a forth. lot of that huh they just kind of stood there and hunkered down and and took the took the hits yeah i mean like the sound design there was like so bad compared to some of the other movies like when they when they set down on the bottom and it just sounds like a sandal crunching some sand on the on the shore <laughs> it did it sounded exactly like that <laughs> <laughs> a guy in a in a foley booth, just like yeah. just like with a with a sandal on his hand. Yeah, <laughs> combination. What? I don't know how it's possible though, but like those few moments of corn didn't spoil the film for me. There have been more films where we tee off on the effects work, and it ends up ruining the film for us. Yeah, but. Why does it work here? The bad effects were were bad enough for me to hate, but then they would, I mean, I think actually blow up a, a gasoline storage tank. Right. And you just see this fireball where you're like, okay. You know what I love <laughs> is you know there was a conversation between effects guys and Pyro and they were like, well, should we put fireworks in everything? They did. And they were like, I mean- yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's exactly what you should do. <laughs> they blew up the ammo dump, and there were bottle rockets. Yeah, and just like... it was so great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there were fireworks everywhere. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, super fun. Pretty delightful. Here's a question. I do not know why we are so forgiving of this movie. Yeah. Because all three of us are kind of celebrating it right now, and yet... There are things about it that are indefensible. Like the plot. <laughs> well, certainly like the like the middle eight. We're up in Massachusetts at this guy's house where his grandmother is saying, boy, you found a looker. Uh, that it's just sort of like, we didn't need all that. We yeah. could have, that could have been condensed into five minutes yeah. or 15. It didn't need 40. And Tyrone Powers' character, I found really unlikable. And unlikable in a way that I think 
anyone in 1943, any woman in 1943 would have been like, I don't know, man. It sounds like you're edging near reviewing the film. Why don't we review the film? I was edging. I don't want to cut you <laughs> that's off. One of, that's one of my number one things these days. I know. After I learned what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, let me do that. Now you're sticking things in there. Yeah, right? all the joy has, has gone out of my life, but now I've found a new... They used to call it Tantra. Oh, Tantra. That was a that was a sting thing, right? Yeah, I wasn't that evolved at the time. You know, uh, piggybacking onto your comments about that middle eight... Well, no, wait a minute. I'm just edging. I don't want to get piggybacked. All right. Well, that might put you over the top, <laughs> clearly. That middle eight really sticks out in this film, and... The one object in the film that I will choose as the rating system for it is sort of a representation of that. The interregnum that we get in the war. You're going to say Ann Baxter is the rating system because she's treated like an object by this movie? <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to your one thing review, Ben. <laughs> Two in a row by you. Angry Ben is a is a new a new thing on the I show like that I'm really ben. liking. Yeah. He's, he's stopping apologizing and just going right in. <laughs> uh, the thing that resembles that most in the film is the idea of the smoking lamp. Like, we've, uh, we've put the sub on the bottom. We're still at war. Smoke them if you got them. Turn them on the smoking lamp. That middle eighth is the smoking lamp of the entire film. And I think to the degree that you are okay with that, I think that will color how you feel about the film like can you let that go does it ruin the rest of the film for you i will say before that middle eighth was over i was not liking this film much at all i did not like being taken away from the sub and i didn't care much about stewart and his courtship a person that i uh, that i still wasn't positive with stewart and not connor's <laughs> but the magic that this film does by the time that eighth is over and you're back on the sub with them and you get the conflict between the captain and the XO. Like, we run into this a lot. Ben and I have another show. I know this surprises you. That, that It that, surprises me that that show is successful or even ever got made. We're watching a, <laughs> we're watching a television series that, that doses out information at such a slow drip that it makes it difficult to judge episode by episode their quality because often things that are set up in one episode are paid off later on. Yeah, what's the deal with the Q-boat in that show? And it made me think a lot about that when I was watching this film because... Like, I wasn't in to the dating 40 minutes of it, but it was fixed at the end of the film. They they fixed it retroactively in a way that really worked for me. There's problems with Stuart. If he hasn't repulsed you completely in the beginning, there is an opening for redemption with him. It was possible to like him, and I did by the end. And I thought uh, I thought Connors was great, too, like... His smile at the end, like they stuck a cigarette in his mouth and he's totally fucked up. And, and like that, that <laughs> smile at the end was like, you, you son of a bitch. You are just the greatest. Like, I love that captain. Quality guy. Lot of charisma. He rode that submarine like he was riding a whale. Like he was sitting astride a whale. It was strange love-esque in riding the bomb. Like he rode his ship out of that harbor. A great moment. In what I thought was a really good movie. 
by the end, that's how I felt. But boy, I really went through some shit on my way there. I think for that reason, I'm just going to give it four smoking lamps. This would have been a sub three smoking lamp movie if we didn't get that last 15 minutes. I thought the commando scene from beginning to end was great. And it redeemed the whole film. It was one scene that fixed the film. Or one sequence that fixed the whole film. Loved it. I love that too. Um, yeah, and I think that like the value of this film straddles like both its value as like a as a movie, but also as like a document of its time. Like, is this the first movie we've seen that was made during World War II as like explicitly a a piece of like inspirational popular media for that cause? What about the Sands of Iwo Jima? I mean, weren't there a couple of movies that we've seen that were... I mean, that was there were like shots in that that were from the from actual the battle, war. but I don't think it came out during the war. It'll be interesting to see if our fan community can explain to us what we've seen <laughs> and if, the, if we've ever seen. But this is the most explicitly uh, like a propaganda film. Yeah. Or a recruiting tool. Right. And and I found it fascinating from that standpoint. There's a moment when uh, when they're like headed out to the Q boat in their little inflatable dinghy, and then the uh, the the trap is sprung and they have to race back to to get back on the boat and and uh, our hero is yelling to crash dive the boat. It's actually like the only scene where the concept of crash dive is ever discussed, despite it being the title of the film. But uh, there's a there's a sailor that uh, is the last out of the dinghy, and he stops to take off his life jacket before jumping out of the raft, and it's drifted far enough away from <laughs> the the sub that he actually like, the, the, you know, his bottom half goes into the drink, and he he barely makes it back onto the sub in one piece. He and, was shitting his pants. Yeah, I think that that is kind of kind of where this movie lives for me. It like it barely makes it. <laughs> back <laughs> it's not uh like i don't know why like like tyrone power is a hell of a charismatic guy to seem like a hero after the way he makes his advances on the Ann baxter character um like the the captain seems so much better like he is he is sensible and and cautious but also like you know loves his men and and uh like gets a promotion he really deserves. <laughs> he he winds up forgiving uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Stewart in the end, and like doesn't doesn't use his position of power in an abusive way to like put anybody's life at more risk than it needs to be. And yet somehow they're like both uh, they're both good guys. <laughs> like, I don't know how this movie does that, but uh, it is surprisingly fun to watch. It's like a, a pretty tight hour and 40 minutes and uh boy yeah i really agree with adam that that commando scene at the end is just like a great final action set piece in uh, in the history of movies and i am also surprised that it hasn't been ripped off more yeah uh, so uh yeah i'll give it uh i'll give it three and a half smoking lamps i think i was coming in here to give it a much lower rating <laughs> and i appreciate that you both liked it a lot and and i agree with your comments about what's good about it but 
<clears throat> the central plot of the film, the the romance, I just feel like was an utter failure. And Tyrone Power was kind of playing a role there that Cary Grant could have pulled off. You know, there's a comedy of manners happening in the middle. And when we look at it from retrospect, we see, or when we look at it from our position, you can see, oh, he's a rich guy. And that has given him a lot of confidence. He's a rich bad boy. And that's put in contrast to the captain. And he's, uh, and she becomes attracted to him because of his relentlessness and his daring do. Um, and, and it, and it's love that happens. It's not just that she's not just toying around. She falls in love with him. And that does come back at, at the end of the film to become like a really meaningful part of the movie, but it's not well done. He could have been He could have played or it could have been written in such a way that we see his wealth more as a component of his, Interesting. Of his yeah. like uh, swagger because that, it takes a long time. And, and I think the reason it, it does is they wrote it in such a way that that's the big reveal that he's a rich kid. Although we see in the opening scene that his uncle is an admiral, but we don't see his privilege within the Navy. Oh, and also he's a Naval Academy graduate. So we know he's like a, we know he's a, a guy from means, but we don't, it, we're not given the contrast as much as we could have been between him and the captain to set us up for this, this domestic comedy drama in the middle. And she's a teacher at a prep school. So she's got, she has alliances or allegiances to, to fancy. That is so interesting. Like it was all right there. Uh, This, this class difference you're describing. And I just never really, I never really paid attention to that because they didn't write it. But it, but it's not that it wasn't there. Yeah, like if you just looked at it through that lens, I think all it's the apparent. clues were there. Yeah, and if it had been, that's what's so great about From Here to Eternity is the domestic drama that's in the well, that's eighty percent of that movie that made us wonder whether or not it was even a war movie. There's some heavy drama in there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as a as a movie of its time, we came away from it understanding that people 70 years ago were just as complicated as we are. And this movie, for whatever reason, just doesn't, it spends an awful lot of time over there, but <clears throat> most of that time is kind of uncomfortable and we we leave a lot on the table in terms of what we could have seen about how men and women were, how class played into this. And so the the great war scenes on either side of it are great. But I don't and 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 the characters are re- redeemed at the end, but I don't know if the film is redeemed mm. at the end because we're we're asked to just kind of shamble through this whole this whole middle part because it's more than a middle eight, you know, it's a middle 32. Yeah. So I was, I was kind of down on it. Um, but then I agree, I, I agree wholeheartedly with the things about it that you guys like. And, and then not even addressing the fact that 
at either at the beginning and end of the film, we're just given this full on treatment of like, it's hard, right? Like there are elements to this film that are a drag on its quality and then some counterbalance to that that are just really great. It makes it hard to review. So I want, you know, I want to say like, this is a must see, but what I would have liked is more of that domestic life spelled out in a way that that I want to recommend to people like this will give you an insight into what it was like on the home front during the war. This Mm -hmm. will give you an insight into what it was like to be a woman during the war. And we just don't get enough of that. I mean, there's that scene when they're on the train platform and all the women are wearing really killer hats and big shouldered jackets. And and you, you're like, wow, I want, I really want to see this. And the scene in the hotel lobby where everybody's trying to find a room, like there are some good, some good moments that feel like it's a comedy from the forties. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like I'm going to give it two and a half smoking lamps. Wow. Cause I just don't, I, it, it's fair though. Yeah, it totally is. I, uh, the submarine stuff is maybe better than a lot of submarine movies we've watched. You, you had so much less eye rolling and like you say, there's racial diversity that's surprising for a movie of its time. And there's, and I liked the captain a lot. I felt he was the better man. I feel like it goes so much better for them than so many of the submarine crews we've we've seen. You know, like almost everything they try works. Yeah, nobody has to seal themselves into a hatch, and we watch them drown. It's not going to be good for recruiting when you uh, oh, that's true. show the guy getting hit with a valve as, as it bursts open. I guess as a recruiting film, you do want everybody to make it back, except the one guy that admits to cowardice and yeah. has a heart condition. <laughs> yeah, and is like sixty years old. Yeah. Do you have a reason, Ben, for your guy? Uh, yeah, I suppose I, I suppose I could defend that. <laughs> I guess this would be the sonar guy or or the guy that, you know, the listening, the yeah. listening man. Uh-huh. I'm sure there's a name for that job. Yeah, sonarman. Lieutenant headphones. Yeah. Um, just because like in the, in the, uh, in the scene where they're going past the harbor mine and like the chain is raking its way along the side of the boat, it's like cutting around to everybody and they're all looking super tense, scared that this mine is going to blow them up and it cuts to that guy and he's got the headphones on and he's he's got both hands up over his head holding onto a pipe and it just looked like he was the boom op for the movie <laughs> and like I like it took me like it, it bumped me for a second because I was like why'd they cut to the boom op and then I was like oh that's the that's the sonar man but uh I, I just love the idea of like a an otherwise totally serious movie cutting to the boom op for a second so uh, that guy was my guy. I know we are all reluctant to choose a main character as guys, but I think Jean, we didn't talk a lot about her uh, as we were reviewing the film, but like she does not want this. She doesn't want any of it. And Stuart wears her down and manipulates her, and that's not good. But the idea of Gene, like, constructing a defense that is capable for a lot of it, like, it's that sort of soft defense that allows creepy Stuart to stay in the hotel room, 
and then she'll go out on a date with him or whatever. But she leaves the hotel early and with the intention of going home and never seeing him again. Like she plays in that liminal space of of morality, which is like, I'm seeing someone and this was just a fling and it's over now and I'm going to go back to my life. Like she does have a backbone to the degree that she does what she can to stop this from happening. And the way that she plays this whole thing out never makes her into a whore. You know, it doesn't make her bad by the end. And that scene where she's talking to Stuart outside of the restaurant. I believe they want to be called tramp steamers, Adam. Right. (laughs) Yeah. The littlest tramp steamer. You can fit a lot of cargo in that hat. (laughs) But you finally recognize her essential honor in the restaurant where uh, where Stuart finds her and is and is like this shit is fucked up you need to forget about me and be with this good captain guy who saved up his uh, his fourth stripe allowance money to buy you a house like we shouldn't have done this and I regret it and you need to forget about me and she actually has her convictions are strong enough to be like no like I actually am in love with the exciting guy and I'm going to be the big girl and tell my boyfriend that I'm dumping him and that's going to be really hard, but I'm going to go in and do it. Like that was a significant part of her character that didn't get a ton of time in the film or a ton of conversation for us. And I thought just, that just made her really interesting. She wasn't like damselly. No. And she, and for a character who was manipulated into falling in love with Stuart, she didn't seem dumb at any point. No, she had integrity, right? Yeah. That's the, that's what it was. Yeah. I just thought that was really fascinating. Because every date they went on, he actually like blackmailed or extorted. Yeah. And she was always put in a position where it was like, well, either you agree to go to dinner with me. I mean, it's not like either you agree to fuck me. It's like if either you agree to go to dinner with me and have a glass of milk or I'm going to out you to your headmistress or I'm going to call the hotel detective, like pretty hardcore threats. I think those elements of her character are crucial in us not totally hating Stuart. Right. Because if she were anything less than what she is, he would be so much more than her. And and the power imbalance there would have been way gross. As it is, doesn't feel great. Right. But I think I think her character is strong enough that I think she's essential in that utility. So she's my guy. Nice. My guy is the great Harry Morgan. Harry Morgan, who even in this film seems 60 years old. <laughs> and he he is in probably 500 movies. He appears in war movies over and over, and we haven't seen a lot of them. And he has a kind of way about him. He's not a tall guy. He just has a kind of dependable sturdiness he plays an officer in this movie he's kind of like the third in command right yeah he just kind of is over there and he's got he's got speaking lines but we're never entirely sure what his job is you like him because he was in mash that's right he was colonel potter in mash and like finally at the end of his career had a starring role and ended up starring in a spin-off of mash called after mash where we went back back to the home front and he was like chief of surgery for a for a hospital somewhere after the war 
After MASH wasn't hosted by Chris Hardwick, was it? Oh, no. No. Because no. that would suck. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I always loved to see him because because Colonel Potter was, was like a, a fixture from my childhood. And so he's very recognizable to me whenever I see him in a movie, even if he's in the background. But I just, I like his way. So he's my guy. Dependable brownie. Super capable. I need a big die of my own. We need another 100-sided die. We need an away game die. We need like a 180-something-sided die because we've got a lot of movies on our list. Yeah. I'm not uh, I'm not living at my house right now for those listeners following along wondering why I'm recording at Adams. And so I left my die at home. Yeah, John brought kind of a lot of bags for recording the show. I'm kind of <laughs> wondering what that's about. <laughs> His car is already up on blocks in my front lawn. Oh, I got a pup tent. <laughs> uh, we have 184 movies on the list at present. I should also explain that, you know, look, last time we had over 200. Yeah. Uh, and I went down the list and kind of took a lot of the border case war movies and moved them over to the list of pork chop movies. Hmm. <laughs> and, I took, and I took some of the pork chop movies that you guys had put on there that were not even edge case war movies and I moved them off into the toilet bowl. Really? And I have to say that as I was going down the pork as I was going down the list and finding movies that I was like, ah, that's a pork chopper, uh eighty nine percent of those had been added to the list by Ben. <laughs> I totally that, thought Adam. That surprises that, I me. I thought that you were going to be 50 50 with him. Yeah. I would have thought the like, same. Nope. This one's another Ben wow. movie, another Ben movie. So, huh. Ben, you, you're the originator of the pork chop concept. Wow. And you have a very strong pork chop uh, I do, ideology. I do like a nice pork chop. But I want you guys to go over, comb over the list and make sure I didn't, because I'd still like there to be some edge case movies in our normal feed. Yeah. I just didn't want any where there was any character that had tentacles <laughs> or anybody that like was completely covered in baby oil from scene one. Mm. All right. So wow. I, I moved a few of them over. All right. I'll give it a look. But I kept some UFO stuff over there. All right. Already. Okay. All right. So let's roll the dice. We got 180 movies. I'm going to say 175. 175. So another World War II film. This one also... During the war in 1944. Whoa. World War II Japan film called 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, directed oh. by Mervyn Leroy. Now, this might be a Doolittle Raid movie, right? We talked about that as a component of the movie Pearl Harbor, where we felt like all of Pearl Harbor could have just been the Doolittle Raid, because that was the only good part of that movie. Yeah. Is this a Doolittle movie, Adam? In the wake of Pearl Harbor, a young lieutenant leaves his expectant wife to volunteer for a secret bombing mission, which will take the war to the Japanese homeland. Sure seems that way. Does. And it's a trumbo screenplay. Really? Yeah. That should be mighty interesting. Two wartime flicks. And again, with a uh, home front romance at the center, trying to get those lady butts in the seats. <laughs> yeah. Lady butts buy war bonds. Oh, they sure That's do. That's what they say. You know, they, they take the bumpers off their cars and give them to the recycling drive. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Looking forward to it. Two hours and 18 minutes. Okay. So a right. little bit of a lunch here. 
can be done. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, and that will be next week on Friendly Fire. In the meantime, for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate to join the squad. You can get all of the bonus content from Maximum Fun by donating as well as our monthly Pork Chop episode. When posting about the show on social media, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.